Happy Cinco de Mayo, Nats fans. If you're heading to the game Wednesday night, you should definitely swing by Walters for some dinner and a spicy margarita made with Alto Silver, fresh lemon and lime juice agave, and DC-made chachco, a jalapeno-infused aguardiente. It's the perfect drink for today and throughout the summer. Walters has a great new outdoor deck, which is perfect for hanging out with friends when the weather is nice. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 0-1. Swing a high drive, dead center field. Robles going back. I don't believe it. It's a grand slam home run for the pitcher, Waskar Inoa. It is 6-0 Atlanta. And welcome to that chat for Wednesday, May 5th. 2021. Happy Cinco de Mayo to everyone, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, a few weeks ago when the Nats got shut down by Jacob deGrom, I used deGrom's name as a verb. I said the Nats had gotten degrom I suppose we have to say that the Nationals on Tuesday night got Uaskar Inouye because he dominated the Nationals in basically every possible way. Who knew that Uaskar Inouye was Shohei Otani? One run unearned in seven innings, a two-out grand slam off Tanner Rainey in the top of the six. Nationals four-game winning streak over, a 6-1 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a big three-game series on a day on which the Nationals activated both Juan Soto and Will Harris. I think you said it all right there. I don't know what to add to that. It was a day that started with good vibes. You know, they're on a four-game winning streak. You've activated your best player a key reliever. The Braves have lost four in a row. You're thinking, all right, maybe there's a chance here. Keep the momentum going and, you know, kind of show the Braves that things are going to be a little different this year. And it just did not play out that way at all. They had no answer for Enoa. And remember, they faced him back in the first series in that doubleheader, and he tossed five shutout innings that day. So it took until their, what, 12th inning against him this season before they finally scored a run off the guy. And it was unearned after all that, and then gave up the grand slams. I mean, that was about as bad of a all-around as you could ask for for the Nationals. I mean, what should have been an uplifting day turned into a pretty depressing day, actually. Yeah, man, and baseball is so cruel. The Braves' starting pitching has been struggling. The Nationals' offense has been better. Nats face a guy, Oscar Inoa, who, you know, is not an immortal. I mean, he's someone you should be able to get to, and instead he gets you, and he hits a grand slam off you. <laughs> That's pretty brutal. He homered his last game, though. Now, I didn't realize this until after the fact, because why would I look up Waskar Reno's batting stats? But he's like five for his last eight. He's doing something right. And he's got a good arm. I mean, he was throwing upper 90s. Um, but that's not the guy you're really expecting to be shut down by, I wouldn't think. No, no way. Uh, all right. So the Nets did get back Juan Soto on Tuesday. So that's very good news. Reinstated from the 10-day injured list. He'd been on that since April 20th due to a left shoulder strain. Nets end up going 7-3 and three over the 10 games 
that Soto misses. He apparently is not available to start in this series, or at least they don't trust him to throw. So he came off the bench on Tuesday. Are we going to see just Soto as a pinch hitter in this series, or might we actually see him start a game, do you think? I think reading between the lines, we're probably not going to see him in the field. We talked to him after the game, and he said they're still building up the throwing. Uh, is going to try from 120 feet, maybe then finally try to start throwing to bases. But I think there's a realization on everyone's part that because they're playing the Yankees this weekend in the Bronx, and they're going to need a DH, that that sets up nicely for him to do that. So why push it and have him play, even if it's just one game, in the field this week against the Braves, why bother with that? Get him a couple of at-bats. He feels fine swinging. He did pinch hit and he struck out in his one at-bat. Maybe get him you know, one at-bat a day for these three days. Work on the arm to the extent they can. Let him DH all weekend against the Yankees. And then next week, put him back in the field. That's reading between the lines, I think, what they're planning to do here. And recognizing, again, as we've said all along, they just don't want to take any chances and let this become something bigger. He said that, he, you know, it's fine. He's not worried about this in the long term, but I think he probably would not be activated yet if not for that interleague series coming up this weekend. It was a pretty cool moment, him coming up to pinch hit in the game on Tuesday night. Nobody out, but a runner on first. Nats are down 6-1, top of the eighth. There was some juice in the ballpark, it felt like. And you hear the roar of the crowd. Soto last played on... April the 19th against the Cardinals went one for four. And the next day, we were surprised to learn he was placed on the injured list. Now, he struck out on four pitches, but just seeing him in the batter's box felt good. And he said that it was a nice feeling, and he was not expecting that reaction from the crowd. You know, he's like used to being cheered, but he, he didn't, you know, it's not a typical spot for him to be in. Remember last year when he came back after the time on the COVID IL, there's no fans at all. So it's not like he had you know, a lot of experience in that sort of, hey, first game back, let the crowd react to you kind of thing. He also does not have a lot of experience as a pinch hitter. And I asked him that. The only one he could remember was his very first at bat in the big leagues was off the bench. And he struck out in that one as well. And he admitted that it's a little harder than you realize, that he has a lot of respect for the one's who are able to do it. But I'm looking it up right now. He did it four times as a rookie in 2018 and actually homered on one of them, but was one for four otherwise. So he's now one for five in his career. And I, I think he um, maybe some newfound respect for pinch hitting that he didn't know was there. This is a guy who his whole life, of course, has been hitting and usually hitting right in the middle of a lineup. So that's a new role for him. And we'll see if he's able to uh, adapt to it or not over the next few days. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. And the guys who can do it well, you certainly commend them. We have a special guest coming up on this installment of the Nationals Chat Podcast. Seth Davis, the longtime CBS College basketball insider, writes for The Athletic as well. He's a local, went to Bullet School in Potomac. He is a massive Nationals fan, so lots of good stuff with Seth Davis coming up a little bit later on in this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. Soto was the headliner in many ways for the Nats on Tuesday, but Will Harris also got activated and made his regular season debut for the Nats on Tuesday night. Scoreless top of the eighth that included back-to-back strikeouts to Kristen Pache and a pinch-hitting Pablo Sandoval with uh, guys on base, runners on first and second. So Harris does a good job getting out of that jam. Hadn't pitched at all this season in the regular season due to the right-hand inflammation. So good to get Harris back. You also got another good bullpen outing from Austin Voth. And Paolo Espino, who is still on the ball club, pitched a perfect top of the ninth inning. Interestingly, the Nats have as the corresponding roster move to Will Harris being reinstated, Kyle McGowan going to AAA Rochester 
not Espino. We'll get to Rainey in a moment, but what did you make about that? Espino stays, McGowan goes. I think pretty clearly Mike Rizzo's been listening to the podcast and he hears the way you're yes, talking up, Paolo, and say, you know what? Maybe we will keep him around a little longer. These guys seem to think he's pretty good. Yeah, I was surprised. I, I will admit that because I thought McGowan had pitched pretty well, but I could also understand it if maybe the idea is let's keep more of a long reliever. You know, John Lester is still working his way back. You know, Fetty and Ross, they are kind of watching their innings. So maybe you'd rather have that guy who could pitch three innings in relief if needed, as opposed to McGowan, who I think has a a bright future as a reliever. You know, the fact he has options made it easy to send him down. We're going to see him again, no doubt. But yeah, I was a little surprised by that. I was not surprised, as I'm sure you were not either by the corresponding move for the Soto activation, which was unfortunately the end of the Hernan Perez era in Washington, D.C. He had a great moment on opening day with the first hit of the season, then a lot of outs, and then two scoreless relief appearances. So if he doesn't return ever again, that is a zero ERA. He'll have the lowest ERA in Nationals pitching history, right? Lockdown pen, brother. He's got that, if nothing else, on his resume. There's no question about that. Hey everyone, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. So we've all had that dream, right? Tie game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right, new users get up to $1,000 back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win, and it only gets better from there. Once you have an account, you'll have access to same-game parlay insurance all season long. That's up to $25 back in site credit each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. They've got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same-game parlay and always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Wizards fans who are excited about the team's run to the play-in tournament, you can put action down on Westbrook Beal and the team all month long. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT. To get in on the action, that's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code chat. 21 plus and present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 109 with it, Indiana, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan, 100-GAMBLER, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia, Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789, or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Are you interested in buying or selling your home? Support for Nats Chat comes from Rachel Levy of Compass Real Estate. By focusing on the personal parts of the real estate process and using technology to simplify the rest, Rachel seamlessly guides her clients through their experience. Rachel uses her deep local knowledge and exceptional customer service to advocate for her clients all across D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. To learn more, follow her on Instagram at Real Estate Rachel. Hey, Nats Chat listeners, Tim Shover's here to tell you about Sunday Scaries CBD gummies. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that taste absolutely delicious and are easy to take on the go. Sunday Scary CBD gummies help you live life scare-free by promoting a sense of calm, quieting your mind, and just helping you to chill out and relax. They sent me a care package a few weeks ago, and let me tell you who they are targeting. Young professionals, entrepreneurs, college students, moms, and yogis. If you fit into one of those categories, I highly recommend checking out Sunday Scary CBD gummies. 
Today, you can get 25% off your first order with the code NATSCHAT at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com. Enter code NATSCHAT where ask for a coupon on the checkout page. Ready to chill out and get some much needed peace of mind? Head to sundayscaries.com right now to get 25% off some sweet, sweet CBD gummies. The boo-boo for the bullpen, of course, was Tanner Rainey. And it's especially disappointing because, of course, Tanner Rainey, great last season, struggled in spring training with the injury, you know, was kind of trying to get into form, has been looking better. And then you feel like just things got set back with what happened on Tuesday night. And it's not just the grand slam. So he comes into the game, runner on second, one out, does get a fly out for the second out, but then issues a two-out intentional walk to Dansby Swanson. That was one of those situations where Rainey fell behind, and then they decided to intentionally walk Swanson. Then gives up the two-out ribby single to William Contreras. Then issues a two-out eight-pitch walk of Kristen Pache to load the bases. And then the big blow, the two-out granny by the Braves starting pitcher, Oscar Inoa, for a 6 nothing Braves lead. A rough outing for Rainey. Yeah, the RBI single by Contreras was on a pretty good pitch, a slider down and away, if I remember right. And he sort of stuck his bat out. And it wasn't, you know, hard contact. And he just kind of found the right spot. So that one's not terrible. The walk to the number eight hitter. And I know the pitcher's on deck, but you've got to know that he's a good hitting pitcher. And, you know, you don't always have to pitch around the number eight guy. If it's somebody that you think you can handle and the inning will be over, like, get it over with. Just try to get him out. So that part frustrating to me. And I think Davey seemed a little, he sort of hinted at he was hoping that they would throw, you know, some sliders. And they didn't. He threw him fastballs only and, and he connected on one that was down the pipe. And the thing with Rainey is, yes, he's getting better, but he's still not where he was in 19 and the start of 20. You know, he's throwing 95 with his fastball. And the thing is, his fastball doesn't move a lot. And so if you're throwing at 98, 99, you can get away with it in the zone. At 95, you really can't. And I mean, that pitch, he, he put it on a platter for, you know, and I, I get it. He's a pitcher. You're not expecting that. But, you know, good hitters can take care of pitches like that. And that to me is a little bit troubling. I think the slider is working for him. He's kind of having to live off it. The fastball's not there yet. And it's going to need to get there because they're going to need him in the long run. Even with a deep and talented bullpen, he's a big part of it, and he's just not quite there yet. Maybe more consistent work will help in that regard, but at the moment, he's kind of the weak link from that group that has otherwise been very good. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a feeling that Rainey could end up being the Nationals' best reliever this season, and maybe it plays out that way, but it certainly hasn't been like that so far. So, bad night for the Nationals' offense, clearly. Nats muster just five hits, just three walks, strikeout. 11 times. Trey Turner did have two of the Nats' five hits and one of the Nats' three walks, but he also had a rough night in the field, and Trey's done a good job defensively so far this season, so I don't want to kill him, but two throwing errors for Trey Turner in the ballgame. The five-run six, Turner with a throwing error on Ozzie Albies' one-out infield single of playing on the second baseman's side of second base in the shift, made a rush throw off a slow grounder, advancing Albies to second base, and then another throwing error by Trey, and I don't know what happened here. Fairly routine grounder by Austin Riley to begin the top of the eighth. Turner's throw pulls Josh Bell off first base. Bell is unable to apply the tag on Riley. You also had another error by Josh Harrison, who's had some defensive issues at second base. You know, dropping again a fairly routine pop-up, shallow right off the bat of Pache. Now, Harrison was playing in a shift. He had to come over from the shortstop side to second base, but still kind of some sloppy defensive play. It's not why the Nats lost the game, but it definitely stood out watching the game. Yeah, and, and a rare case for that. I mean, I know Harrison's had some troubles. He's he's the only, second base is the only position on the field for the Nats that has had a negative defensive run saved rating so far this year. 
So that one was less surprising. Trey has been fantastic. We've talked about it. I think he just got a little sloppy, a little careless with those. That last one, it almost seemed like he got a little lazy with it. Just didn't, you know, I think he could have made a good solid throw. And instead, he just kind of winged it over there. And uh, you want to pull in Bell off the back. But Bell has had a, several of these on this homestand. Throws that he's got to jump off the base, catch it, and try to swipe tag in. And a couple of times he's been able to get the runner and a couple of times he has not. Josh Bell's done all right so far, better than I think than we expected at first base, but you want to try to avoid needing to make him jump around like that. That's not his forte. If it's Zimmerman, maybe you feel a little more comfortable. I don't think you really want to be doing that a lot with Josh Bell. So it just a couple more reasons that it's just a not a good game for the Nats. There just wasn't a lot to hang your hat on from this one for whatever reason. No, I do want to give credit, though, to Victor Robles, who made a spectacular defensive play in the top of the third, a great lunging backhanded catch on the warning track while running toward the center field wall and falling down a first pitch liner off the bat of Ronald Acuna Jr. for the second out. Acuna launches one to deep center. This one is crushed. Robles back. He leaps, makes a spectacular catch, and goes diving on the warning track. What a play by Robles. Then he fires in toward third with Pache going back to second with a runner on second. I mean, in terms of degree of difficulty, that might be the best defensive play we've seen so far this season. That's not an easy play to make. He made it. Obviously, you retire the uber-dangerous Acuna. Tremendous job by Robles there. Yeah, it's tough because that's the ball right over your head in center field. And those are always the toughest ones. Do you twist? Do you turn? Do you backtrack? How do you handle those? And he played it beautifully. High degree of difficulty. I think that one was uh, 93% hit probability on that one. So, I mean, that tells you how good of a play that was. Then did you also notice later on, on a, what was basically a routine fly ball to right field and Yadiel Hernandez is camped right under it and Robles comes charging over <laughs> like he's going to take control. I mean, I know you want your center fielders to take charge out there. I thought that was a bit extreme of an example of that. And I'm not entirely sure why he felt the need to do that <laughs> on that play, but there were, going back to, to the nice play he made, that was one of several really hard hit balls off Joe Ross, including three of them off Acuna's bat. And I thought Joe, the final numbers wound up looking pretty good, but I didn't think he pitched all that well. And he seemed to agree with it. He was leaving his sinkers up in the zone. And he was getting hit hard and was helped out by his defense. And I do not understand at this point, they've seen Ronald Acuna enough. Why would you ever throw that guy a first pitch fastball? First pitch of the game, ripped a single to left. The Robles play we were just talking about was the first pitch. And then the home run was later in the bat, but it was also on a fastball. Like, why would you give this guy anything over 90 miles an hour? That one baffled me as far as pitch selection goes. He's spectacular. I mean, he's one of probably, what, the top five players in the sport? You know, certainly this season, that's been the case. To your point about Joe Ross, final line, two runs and in five into third innings. So, you know, I think for the most part, you'll take that from Ross. But if you watch the game, you saw a bit of a different story. Gave up the homer to Acuna, also gave up a double and three singles. Issued two walks, one of which was intentional. And Davey pulling Ross when Davey did, I mean, it, it comes after a one-out soft infield single by Albies. Again, you had that throwing error by Trey Turner. Davey did allow Ross to face the Braves' top four batters three times each before pulling Ross. The decision doesn't work out because of what Rainey ended up doing, but I can't kill Davey for pulling Ross there. Again, it's not like Ross was lights out in this game. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, there's even an argument for maybe not even letting him come back for the sixth. I think he was in the on-deck circle in the fifth, and they had, I can't remember who it was now, it might have been Stevenson. They had a pinch hitter in the on-deck circle. So had one more runner got on for the Nats in the bottom of the fifth, they were going to hit for Ross anyways and not let him take the mound for the sixth. So you could even argue at 80 pitches that they could have pulled the plug and just let Rainey have a clean inning. 
I was also a little bit surprised at the decision to go with Rainey in the sixth and in the middle of an inning with a runner already on base. He's a little more used to coming in to start an inning clean. He's been more of a seventh inning guy for them. And I wondered if that, you know, things didn't work out this way because the game was lost by that point. But I wonder if we're already seeing from Davey how he's going to map this all out now. Rainey's in the sixth, Harris in the seventh before he gets to Hudson in hand. We'll see if they ever get to that point. But I was a little surprised that he went to Rainey as early as he did and asking him to pitch out of a jam, a guy who has been probably the least effective or most inconsistent reliever so far this year. Yeah. I mean, if Rainey is striking guys out, he's actually profiles as a great fireman, but he's not doing that so far this season. He's striking guys out like he did last season. I mean, I would like David to be more open to using someone like a hand in that spot. If you got guys on base and you really need to get out of the jam, I think hand is capable there. But Rainey, if he's doing as we know he can, I think can do well. Obviously, he's not doing, though, as he can. And boy, that was a rough outing for him on Tuesday night. All right, we will preview Wednesday night's game coming up momentarily. But first, we want to give to you our conversation with one of the great Nationals fans we have, a local, but a guy who, of course, has been national for many, many years, CBS College basketball insider, writes for The Athletic as well, Seth Davis, talking Nats. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kelly's one-strike pitch. Swing a fly ball, center field deep. Bellinger going back to the warning track, to the wall. It's a grand slam. Howie Kendrick has done it. They're going crazy in the Nationals' dugout. Howie Kendrick with a grand slam here in the 10th inning of Game 5. The Nationals 7, the Dodgers 3. Do you believe it? All right, very pleased to welcome to the Nats Chat Podcast the latest in our line of celebrity Nationals fans. He is CBS Sports College Hoops insider, senior college basketball writer for The Athletic, Seth Davis, a local as he went to Bullet School in Potomac, and he is a fan of the Curly W. Seth, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. How are you? It's great to be here, and I'm just very grateful that you're dumbing down your definition of celebrity. So um, I'm glad that, uh, that you got it low enough that I could clear that bar. You certainly qualify, and uh, it's great to have you on, man. So the Seth Davis story as a Nats fan, did you grow up as an Orioles fan and make the change? Were you never an O's fan and just went all in on the Nats when they came to D.C.? How did you become a Nats fan? 
definitely grew up an Orioles fan. That was the only, you know, baseball that we got to watch, you know, as there are a couple of like uh, old timer games that I went to in the RFK stadium, you know, my dad, Lanny, who's towers over me in terms of his Nats fandom. I mean, he's, he's very obsessed and uh, still in Washington and, and very uh, into politics. He was a huge, huge Willie Mays fan. So Willie was playing in an old timers game in RFK stadium and went and saw him there. But, you know, the notion of Washington getting a baseball team was just a concept that you just felt like you were never going to live long enough to see. So, yeah, I grew up an Orioles fan and those were really good teams uh, in my youth. I was actually at two really of the most historically significant moments uh, in the history of that franchise. One was a bad one, 1979, game seven against the Pirates when Willie Stargell hit uh, a home run and win the game late in that game. I was actually at the, I guess it was Memorial Stadium was the old Orioles Stadium. And then I was also in Camden Yards uh, the night that Cal Ripken broke uh, Lou Gehrig's uh, streak. So yeah, once the Nats came along, um, and of course they were real bad at, at the beginning, but they were interesting. I wasn't like a huge follow, but once they got Strasburg and Bryce Harper, it was like, I was never a huge baseball fan. I was all about the Redskins, like every other kid of that era growing up in Washington. So I consider myself much more a Nationals fan than a baseball fan. But once the Nationals got good, it was like, I get it. You know, like they were fun to follow. They were scrappy. They were great to root for. And so they just kind of picked me up and carried me along and they're still carrying me along. Okay. So what then, like, we're going to get to 2019, but maybe pre-2019, what's like your your big moment, the moment maybe it clicked and the one that stands out in your mind you really remember is a significant moment for you as a Nats fan? Well, again, I think when they got Strasburg and Harper, they became interesting. Like even when they weren't winning a ton of games, and I know Stras went through his thing with his injury and whether the sit on that was kind of an interesting drama, but they became interesting. I mean, you know, they had, you know, arguably the best young pitching prospect in the league and arguably the best young hitting prospect in the league. And that certainly panned out to be true. I guess when you ask that question, the moment that sticks out is when they blew the lead to the Cardinals in, in, in the playoffs and ended their season. And uh, I remember calling my dad the, the next day and he picked up the phone and he goes, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, this is that. And he's, and he's coming up. He said, I don't want to talk about it. And, and, and as a postscript, you know, my dad was always a big Drew Storen fan. This is a, a great example of the worlds of college basketball and major league baseball converge, converging, right? So he is a Drew Storen fan. And of course, Drew gave up the hits at the end of that Cardinals game, uh, totally heartbreaking. And my dad wrote a column for The Hill about Drew Storen and, you know, coming back from adversity and just kind of uh, about his Nats fandom. So I'm attending an Indiana Hoosiers basketball game in Assembly Hall in Bloomington. And the game is over and I go back into the coach's locker room. I've known at the time the head coach was Tom Crean. And I've known Tom for a long time and I'm back there talking to him and he's talking to some guy and he says, by the way, so say hello, this is Drew Storen. I was like, oh my God, Drew Storen, I'm a huge Nats fan, but the guy who's really a big fan of yours is my dad. So I called my dad, it was like 11 o'clock at night, I think, close to midnight. I think I may have texted him like, are you awake? I need to talk to you right now. And so he calls me and I handed the phone to Drew Storen and they're still kind of still in communication. So even when the Nats lose, they give us something to be happy about. So as you know, in college basketball, it's not fair, but it's true, right? Coaches get judged on the one and done that is the NCAA tournament. As a Nationals fan, did you have sort of this irrational thing of like, they keep making the playoffs, but they don't win. There's something fundamentally wrong with them. Like, were you kind of a fan in that way? Or were you always kind of like, hey, I would tell my college basketball self to calm down. You know, one and done is not exactly the most fair thing to judge. In baseball, they keep making the postseason. Eventually, they're going to crack on through. How did you kind of digest those playoff failures for the Nats? 
those multiple times until they bust on through to win in 19? It's a great question now because it's similar to how I look at the NCAA tournament. I mean, these things are very capricious. I mean, you're talking about losing in the final game of, of a series. I mean, baseball is crazy. Funky bounces. Um, you know, one hot pitcher can completely dominate a game. So I didn't like when they got rid of Davey and I didn't like when they got rid of Dusty Baker because I, I don't like when you're blaming the manager. Now it's worked out for them, but uh, I, I just don't look at like, I don't look at it as a fan that it's my birthright that my team should win the world series. I'm astounded that they won the world series. So that to me is, is the shocking part. You, know, you get into a divisional series and you're losing in game five. It's just, it's hard to win a world series. So I've never really been that kind of fan. I'm, I'm probably, probably a little bit too, probably I should never own a team because I'm too nice. No coach would ever get fired. Always oh, a nice guy. He'll turn it around. It's not his fault. And uh, you go from there, but they've done well for themselves uh, since then, but it's been a painful journey to be sure. All right. So speaking of painful game fives, I'm now going to take you to the most joyous game five at Dodger stadium in 2019. And I know you were there. With your family. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? And what were the emotions as you're watching that game? I know what I was feeling inside the press box, scrambling to decide when do I start writing a lead or not? When do I, you know, do I trust it or not? What was that like for you guys in the stands witnessing all that in person? Well, first of all, I know what it's like to be in that situation in the press box. And let's be honest, in that situation, we're completely rooting for ourselves. Right. Like whatever was good, best for Mark Zuckerman in that situation, the early deadline, oh, I already have my lead written and then the game goes the other way. It's like they're messing up my lead. I get it. I get it. But it was more fun to be where I was because once, I guess they won game four, am I right? Like they came At to home, Dodger yeah, Stadium, right. won game four. Uh, or I guess they won game four was in Washington. Right. Okay. Because once there was going to be, because I've been talking to my dad about, look, if because we, I've taken my sons, I have three boys. I've taken my sons uh, and my wife to, you know, some Nationals Dodgers games when they came. We'll go to Dodger Stadium once in a while, even though it's the worst stadium on the planet in terms of leaving yes, because <laughs> uh, there's only one way in, but that's another topic. So once it got to game five, I, after the game four, I called my dad that night. I'm like, you got to come out here. We got, let's find out. Let's get the tickets. We got to go to that game. You have to be here for it. And on top of everything else, the coming from uh, Washington to LA on short notice, finding tickets, spending all that money to go. It was young Kipper. Right. Okay. That's right. That's right. It was young, right. You worked on, on young did. Kipper, Mark. Did, yeah. So you're, you're MOT. So, so we're not Sandy Koufax. Like, you know, he's at a higher level than us. Let's be honest. And they came out. And so I have three boys. One of them had soccer practice that night. He felt like he couldn't leave to his ever everlasting. But let that be a life lesson, like bail on your soccer practice, please. So, you know, we're at this incredible game. And of course, they fall behind because they're the Nets. And they start coming back. And th that was the game where Kershaw gave up the back to back Correct. home run. Away. Yeah, Rendon and Soto. So, right. There you go. So it was me, my dad, and two of my sons, Noah and Gabriel, and we're all watching. And of course, you know, we're in Dodger Stadium in our Nats gear, surrounded by Dodgers fans. But everyone in LA is nice. If this was in Philly, we would have gotten the crap kicked out of us. So we're watching this incredible game. Bases loaded. Kendrick hits the granny. And we had great seats, by the way. Kendrick hits the Grammy. And of course, the place is quiet, except for these four crazy Nats fans jumping up and down, ah, screaming, oh, my God. And out of the corner of my eye, I see somebody in the row in front of me holding up a phone and pointing his phone at us. And so, you know, I almost like barely noticed it because I was so caught up in the moment. And then when it was over, I kind of went over to him and I said, did you get that on video? He was a Nationals fan. And he said, you know what? 
playoff game, game five here. This is a pretty big moment. I'm going to take out my phone just in case. And he gets the Grand Slam on video and he happens to turn around and get this video of this family. And it's incredibly, to have that moment as a family captured on video is just amazing. And then my dad took a picture. I know this is a podcast, this is not video, but my dad had it framed, if you see behind me, of me and my two boys going nuts, me and my Nationals sweatshirt. So the fact that we were at the game and, and were able to share it as a family was unbelievable enough. The idea that it, it's caught on video for all eternity was, uh, is pretty epic. Very cool. It's really cool to hear that. I know for a lot of people in sports media, you know, you become kind of jaded and your sports fandom gets lessened as time goes on. Sounds like you very much have had the passion for the Nationals. You've very much been a fan of the Nationals and have been able to enjoy what they've done. I think it would be hard, Al, to do what we do if we weren't big sports fans. And this idea that you're supposed to stop cheering for your teams. Look, I went to Duke and I covered college basketball. Everybody hates Duke, right? Even if you don't know anything about Duke other than. And so, you know, I get all the time. Well, you know, I do criticize like people ask me. You know, is it hard for you to criticize Duke because you went there? My answer is no, it's hard for me to praise Duke because if I praise them, they're like, you know, well, you're just saying that. And let's be honest, there's a lot of compliments to give to Duke basketball over the last 20 years. They've won five titles. So I've never, and hey, by the way, after this, I hope I'm going on a Wizards podcast because I am just uh, uh, loving what they're doing. And obviously the Caps are, are great. And it's, it's pretty amazing as a D.C. sports fan to see the, the Redskins, excuse me, the former, formerly the Redskins, the Washington football team, what's happened to that franchise and the deep, deep backseat that they're taking. Um, tragically, just the fact in the rankings, it's like Nationals, Wizards, Caps, <laughs> Mystics, and then, the, and then the Washington football team is, uh, is unfortunate. Hopefully Georgetown basketball will make their, their comeback as well. So, yes, I've, I've retained that fandom. And, you know, I've been covering college basketball for now over a quarter century, I guess. I still love watching games and studying teams. And I think it'd be pretty hard to do what we do and be around it as much as we are if you weren't at heart a fan. And I'm certainly I've never been of the belief that just because we work in the media now that we have to stop being fans of it shouldn't bleed into your coverage and affect how you do your job. But it's it's OK to still like watching games. So perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you about. We get to watch the NCAA tournament as fans on TV, flipping around between games. You get to watch it with that group of, of guys who are the premier experts and you know the face of the sport. What is it like, especially those first two days of the tournament, what is it like watching all the games together with that group? It's as fun as you think it is. It's a lot of fun. And of course, you know, people are kind of ducking in and out of work and maybe not going to work or watching games while they work. Like I'm at work <laughs> and I'm not only watching games, but, you know, having stats and information fed into my ear all the time and tracking it and working the phones. It was great this past year, as unfortunate as the situation was them creating the bubble in Indianapolis, I've never had an easier time getting coaches on the phone during during the tournament because they had nothing to do. They're sitting around, you know, just picking the phone right up. So that part of it is is pretty cool. And, you know, I've been doing it a while now. I think I want to say 18 years maybe or so at, at CBS, something around around along those lines. So there's so many games in the tournament. Most of them are not very compelling. And the majority of them, of course, are very forgettable. But there's always a few, maybe a half dozen or so that are uh, rather unforgettable. This year, the best example was that UCLA Gonzaga Final Four. And because of the setup in the Final Four, where you basically had no fans. I should have sent you guys this video, although it was on my Twitter feed. I was like basically on the court when that shot 
went in. I don't know if protocols, I was supposed to be there, frankly, but I'm like, <laughs> and it was, it, it was very weird because you did very few fans. There, so you didn't hear, you know, the roar of the crowd, but I was right there when that, when that shot went in. So it becomes, you ask about those first two days, Mark, it really becomes more about just getting enough sleep and having the energy and getting your workouts in and being healthy and not getting sick. And, you know, this year, obviously not getting COVID was the extra concern. I'm certainly not cramming, you know, information to study because I cover the sport all year round. So it's very, very physically taxing and physically exhausting, but you just kind of push through that and you feed off the energy of the people around you. One thing I'll say, Mark, is, you know, writing, as you well know, is a lonely endeavor. It's just you and your screen. And, you know, I've written books and it's incredibly lonely television. You're part of a team and you have the energy, not just the people you're on air with, but your producers and directors, your research guys, your camera guys, your sound guys, the runners, you know, the college kids getting stuff for you, the executives who are around. I mean, it's all one big hardworking and uh, happy family in the studio. And I really enjoy that part of it. So with the NCAA tournament last season, Major League Baseball, because of the pandemic, had this expanded postseason for which there was a wild card round. And the first few days of the wild card round were NCAA tournament like you had a bunch of teams making the postseason. And you had this like, you know, Thursday, Friday like thing in the NCAA tournament with the MLB playoffs, bunch of games, you know, everywhere you look, there was a baseball game going on. As a fan of baseball, would you like to see that an expanded postseason more of an NCAA tournament like effect? Do you like more how it has been traditionally where it's very prestigious to make the postseason, but you never have, you know, a few days where it's just like nothing but baseball wall to wall? That's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, the other analogy going on right now is an interesting conversation is the NBA with this playing. And of course, now LeBron doesn't like it because he's going to be in it. <laughs> he never, I never heard his opinion about this thing until the Lakers went in the tank. And as a Wizards fan, of course, I love it because otherwise they wouldn't be in the playoffs. So to me, I think that was a kind of a cool idea. I have to say, I think having a one-game format, even though I know they do that now with the wild card in baseball, it's probably not a real fair way to, to do it. I mean, I think baseball, because of the pitching rotations, uh, is very much a part of your personality and, and a part of your team. Now, I was, I remember many years ago when they had the debate in baseball about going to the wild card and adding uh, the teams and they broke up the division. They got more teams in the playoffs and it kind of offended, you know, the purists, you know, the Bob Costas's of the world, but the reality, and by the way, college football went through the same thing about even having a playoff at all. And now they're saying, well, four teams isn't enough. And the idea that you're expanding the playoffs. Well, if, if you have a playoff in college football, you are, you know, lowering the importance of the regular season. It's actually, that's actually the opposite of true. The more, you know, teams have a chance to make the playoffs. I mean, the Wizards regular season games right now are super meaningful. Wouldn't be the case without that seven through 10. So I tap the brakes on the baseball part because I do think a one game in baseball is not the same as a one game in basketball because you can only start one pitcher that day. But I guess that's where I would fall in on that, but on that, but unless that's what the nationals need to get in the playoffs, if it means adding more spots and having more one game uh, plans to get, to get my Nats one more, one more bite at the apple, but I don't know, guys, I should be asking you about some questions about them. I mean, I, I feel really good about where they are. I mean, partly the, the suckiness of the NL East is certainly helping, but with the injuries and the COVID thing, I mean, this, this team seems to have a, a really good fighting spirit about them. What do you guys think? I actually think, and we talked about this a couple of days ago, There, it's early, but to me, there is a little bit of a 2019 quality to them, that ability to shrug off whatever adversity they're having to deal with, the injuries, 
losing some tough games and just go one and oh, as Davey likes to say, you know, there's a long way to go. A lot of things still have to happen, but I do see some resiliencies there. That reminds me a little bit of the 2019 team. We'll see how that all plays out. I agree. Um, but I agree with you also on, I, I'm not a fan of the one game thing in baseball. And, you know, we tend to forget this. The Nats were this close to losing <laughs> right. the wild card game. And that whole season would have been rendered you know, meaningless if they don't win it, if not for Juan Soto. So I guess it helped them in the end. But from a fairness standpoint, I've always felt like you got to give at least a best of three. By the way, my boys always bring that up to me because they had a soccer practice or something that night. So I missed the first half of the game and we're listening to the later innings in the car uh, and we're going through the drive through at McDonald's and something happened where it looked like the game was going bad. And I start slamming the steering wheel and I'm shouting, why can't I have nice things? Why can't I have nice things? And then we came home and watched the uh, watched the comeback win and watched it from there. So they remind me about how I panicked and they didn't. Who is Seth Davis's favorite national right now? Got to be Max. You know, I've, I've, I've thought about this because both in terms of what I do at my job and then also raising my kids like this notion of talent. You know, how, how are we defining talent? And I cover a sport where there are some traits, some obvious physical traits that people define as talent that are easy to spot. You know, size, speed, jumping ability. But to me, hard work is talent. Uh, Mark was talking about resilience. That's talent. Uh, competitive drive is talent. So what he's doing at his age is just absolutely, it's Brady-like is what it is. And uh, I was, I my son has, uh, his, today's actually his, his birthday. And we, we took a group of his friends to Six Flags on Sunday to celebrate his birthday. And I was watching um, the end of the game with Max when he came into the ninth. And I'm like, all right, you guys can go on any rides you want. Like, this is epic what he's doing. And so I just, and of course, later that day, you know, his wife had a kid, you know, so I, like, how was your Sunday? So it's his, it's his competitive drive and his intensity and all like, we, we only see it on the mound every fifth game. Right. But what he's doing every day, what Tom Brady does every day to treat their bodies at this stage well, and to get their minds ready to compete at that level where at this stage of their lives are as good as they are. I have the ultimate appreciation for that. You'll like this because it's a good Mac story and it's about game five at Dodger Stadium. You probably had no way of even seeing this or even realizing to look for it. But late in that game, he was pestering Davey so much in the dugout. They can't stand him on the days that he doesn't pitch because he's just (laughs) nonstop in motion. And he's begging him, can I go down to the bullpen? Like, I can pitch, I can pitch. And they're like, you're not pitching, Max. It's not happening. And finally, they just Davey says, fine, go down there. Go ahead. He makes his way down there. And if you watch on the replays of it all at the very end of the game, he's in the in the bullpen. He's not warming up. He's not doing anything, but he's in the bullpen for the 10th inning. And as soon as the final outs recorded, Michael A. Taylor makes the dive and catch. Max is the one to like swing the bullpen gate open and go storming onto the field as fast as he can. Oh, that's funny. Nobody, everybody else is like 50 feet behind him. He gets about halfway there. He turns around, looks over his shoulder like, hey, where is everyone? <laughs> Before they finally catch up to him. That to me was like, that's the epitome of Max Scherzer when he's not pitching. He's just so into it at all times. And I, I love to, to watch that stuff. How about that game a, a week or two ago where they had been struggling and he had uh, tons of strikeouts and he just went into the dugout and he like body slammed like a batting coat. He's just screaming at everybody. Like that's, I think Mark, that's a great, you know, that's what you meant. I think when you talk about that 2019 spirit that, hey, like, let's just please get what he's really saying is, hey, you blah, blank, blankety blanks, get me a run here. You know, probably what DeGrom does every, every time he pitches, right? 
No doubt. Well, Seth, it's been great having you on, man. It's uh, it's really a treat to hear about your Nationals fandom. I know a lot of Nats fans enjoy hearing stuff like that. All the best to you. Continued success. And uh, hopefully we're talking about more national success as the season goes on here. I appreciate you having me, guys. This is a blast. Thank you so much. All right. Good stuff there from Seth Davis. You can tell, Mark, his Nationals fandom is legit. A lot of passion for the franchise. Oh, that was legit. And um, I loved hearing him tell the story about being at Dodger Stadium for game five and just what an emotional moment. And, you know, we heard that same kind of story from so many fans, whether they were there in person or back at Nationals Park watching on the Jumbotron or just in their own homes. What a cathartic moment that was when Howie Kendrick hit the Grand Slam to finally get them over the hump. And even if they don't go on to win the the pennant and win the World Series, I still think for a lot of fans, that would have been enough (laughs) for them between the wild card game and to finally win a division series in dramatic fashion as they did, it's almost like everything after that was gravy. And you wonder if for fans that would have been like, hey, that's good enough. We had that moment now and we can move on from it. You can tell what it meant to him uh, and his family. One of my favorite tweets from the Nationals 2019 postseason run came from Ken Rosenthal when after the wild card win over the Brewers, Rosenthal said, that wasn't a baseball game. That was an exorcism. And it was the Nationals winning a do or die elimination game at Nationals Park like that. And of course, that was just a wild card game. Like there was so much more to go beyond that. But that night was so special. And then obviously with Seth detailed, incredibly special as well. So game two for the Nationals against the Braves Wednesday night, 705. Eric Fetty versus Max Freed. Fetty got wrecked in his first start of this season. Since then, his last four starts, six runs in 20 and two thirds innings, a 261 ERA, 24 strikeouts versus eight walks. He's pitching really like we've never seen him pitch before as a national. Hopefully keeps it going against Freed on Wednesday night. Well, that one start you referenced, his first of the year where he did not look good, was against, oh, the Atlanta Braves. So let's see how it does this time around. And I know the Braves haven't really been clicking yet. Freddie Freeman, he looked about as lost as I've ever seen him at the plate in this game. And I don't know what's going on with him, but I don't trust that to last for long. It takes one night for him to get back on track. And so if I'm Eric Fetty, I know Freeman hasn't been doing too well here to start the season, but he'd be the guy I'm worried about. Don't give Acuna first pitch fastball, like we just said. Start with something else for the first pitch of the game. A big start for him. And let's see, can the lineup show some consistency here? I mean, how many times have we talked about they're getting to the fifth, the sixth inning of games and they haven't put a run on the board? And Freed is a guy who is very good. He's a lefty. The Nats have had some success against lefties. I would imagine Ryan Zimmerman will be in the lineup again. That might make some sense for this. Uh, the Nats hit Freed early in the season. The first game of that doubleheader, they scored five runs off him in two innings. Trey Turner homered in the first inning off him. So they have had some success. Like we keep talking about, like get an early lead. It seems like all these games, they're almost being determined early on. Whoever scores first is winning the game a lot, especially when the Nats score first. So hopefully get off to a good start and, and give Fetty a lead to work with and, and see what happens from there. Yeah, and hopefully hits for some power. I mean, Nats have done a better job of that lately. Obviously did not do a good job of that on Tuesday night. And better defensively, too. The three errors, way too many. I know errors aren't always reflective of your defense, but they were, I thought, on Tuesday night. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. Also, keep the feedback coming, including the Little League stories. We've gotten some good ones, so hopefully we can get back to those sometime soon. Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, at Mark Zuckerman on Twitter. I am at Al Galdi. All Nationals highlights as heard on the Nats Chat Podcast are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Long look in, Doolittle is ready. 
One ball, one strike on Justin Turner. Here's the pitch. Swing a fly ball, shallow center. Racing on his Taylor, closing on it, dives, and he caught it! A diving catch ends the series! What a play by Michael Taylor! A diving catch, and the Nationals, for the first time in their history, will play in the National League Championship Series. They're celebrating on the pitcher's mound, jumping up and down. Michael Taylor getting surrounded near second base with a diving catch to close out the Dodgers. Final score, the Nationals 7, the Dodgers 3. The Nationals win the series 3 games to 2. And it's on to St. Louis to play for the National League Championship. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.